Chapter 19 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 We Sail for Paraguay. The following facts concerning the navigation of the rivers Parana and Paraguay will be of interest to any who propose ascending these majestic streams. The average rate of the current between Buenos Aires and Corrientes is two to two and a half knots an hour. The current of the Paraguay is less strong than that of the Parana. The navigation of both rivers is obstructed by constantly shifting sandbanks. The height of the waters varies much and irregularly according to the rains in the Mato Grosso and the Chilean Andes. Sometimes there will be but six feet of water in the passages between the shoals, and at other times the Indian Chaco will be flooded for a hundred miles from the river bank. Cuyaba in Mato Grosso, the very heart of South America, is the limit of the navigation. The flat-bottomed schooners occupy the best part of a year in sailing there and back. To accomplish the outward journey in six months is considered good work. These vessels, as a rule, have excellent pilots on board and travel day and night. When there is no wind, they pole or warp. It is only within the last few years that the upper rivers have been navigated by these Italian goletas, for the exclusive policy of the tyrants of Paraguay closed that portion of the stream to foreign bottoms, and in Paraguay itself, vessels of any description were quite unknown. But now the whole majestic river system of the Parana Paraguay is open to commerce from the tropic forests in Llanos of Mato Grosso to the bleak steppes of Buenos Aires Pampas. The following are the distances by water in English miles from the chief places on the river to Montevideo, which can be considered as at the mouth of the La Plata. Buenos Aires, 150 miles. Rosario, 430. Diamante, 507. Parana, 552. La Paz, 692. Bella Vista, 911. Corrientes, 1053. Rio Paraguay, 1081. Humaita, 1109. Villa Piar, 1133. Villa Franca, 1189. Formosa, 1210. Via Oliva, 1,228. Vieta, 1,294. Asuncion, 1,312. Cuyaba, 2,365 miles. As the current is perpetually contrary, and it is rarely possible to tack against a headwind, the upward journey is generally tedious for a sailing vessel. Thus, as will be seen, our voyage from the Tigre to Asuncion, the capital of Paraguay, occupied 91 days. But it must be remembered that, unlike many of the traders, we invariably came to an anchor at night, and rarely took to poling or warping when there was a calm. On getting off our mud bank on the morning of the 12th of May, we found that there was but a very light breeze, but we were anxious to make a start, so by dint of sailing, poling, and rowing, managed to travel about 30 miles before sunset. 
On getting out of the Tigre, we ascended the Capitan, one of the numberless channels of the Delta. It wound so much and was so very narrow, not more than 80 feet or so broad. All this day we were traveling through a lonely and beautiful forest of willows. In the midst of it, we passed the Quinta or country house of ex-president Sarmiento, where that hard-working literature loves to retire in the summer months. In the afternoon, a large Genoese coleta came up with us, overhauling us with ease. We found that these vessels always did so going up the river, their shallow draught and enormous spread of canvas towering above the trees being in their favor. But coming down the river, especially when any beating had to be done, our draught told and we were more than a match for any of them. We also spoke to Bayandras, or smart river sloops, bound for Buenos Aires from Paraguay. These were laden with oranges, which not only filled their holds, but were piled seven feet high on their decks. At sunset, we dropped our kedge and made a bowline fast to a tree on shore. Thus ended the first day of our cruise to that mystic and beautiful land of Paraguay. May 13th. The wind being fair, we sailed out of the narrow Capitan into the wide Parana de las Palmas, one of the mightiest of the mouths of the Parana. There was quite a choppy sea on this broad water, so the old falcon became quite lively and began to imagine she was on her beloved ocean once more. But the freshness of the water must have puzzled her. We had some capital spinnaker drill this day, as on many other occasions on this voyage, for we had to be continually jibbing the mainsail and shifting over the former sail according to the windings of the river, which brought the wind now on this, now on that quarter. The scenery was as that of the whole of this delta, low, broad islands covered with rank jungle and forest, and intersected by numerous streams. Many camelotas, or floating islands of a species of lily, passed us. It is these that join together and form the islands of the delta, binding the soft alluvial soil that is brought down by the river. Quantities of eagles and turkey buzzards hovered over the rank foliage of the swampy country. On the 14th of May, we reached Campana, where the wind fell away and we were obliged to come to an anchor. We were now becalmed for nearly four days, a prey to mosquitoes and ennui. We passed our time in grumbling and fishing with cotton and bent pins in the matter of the serpentine anglers, for a small fish that abounds here and which, when fried, we pronounced to be as good as whitebait. This enforced idleness tried all our tempers, especially those of our lion and the two boys, Jim and Arthur. The two latter were always squabbling, and the lion became so irritable and ferocious that no one dared to approach him. He bit and clawed several of us and growled perpetually. At last he lost his appetite and showed symptoms of insanity and distinct homicidal mania. So we had to execute him and cast his corpse into the river, as an example to the two lads. While we were becalmed and at anchor, a government steam launch came to us from Campana, and the officer in charge took it upon himself to reprimand us severely for not hoisting our ensign before eight o'clock in the morning. As he was rather abrupt in his manner, we became obstinate and positively refused to show our colors before the orthodox time. The Argentine naval officers are inclined to be rather arbitrary, 
and are very punctilious about the respect that is due their flag. A few weeks before this, the passenger steamer Inca of the Brazilian River Company was steaming down the Piranha flying the Brazilian flag. There happened to be a small Argentine gunboat hidden in the jungle under the bank, the captain of which, observing that the steamer did not dip on passing, snatched up a rifle and deliberately commenced to fire shot after shot at the Brazilian captain as he stood on the bridge, and it was not owing to want of will, but of skill, that he did not kill him. On May the 18th, a favorable breeze sprang up, and under all canvas, Spinnaker included, we reached the port of Zarate before evening. Above, on the hill, we saw the little white gleaming town of the same name nestling among the fine willows. So, with Jim following me with a huge basket under his arm, I walked up to it in order to do some marketing, for we had run rather short of stores. I called at the Capitania on my way to report myself, for every hamlet on the river has its captain of the port. This functionary here had little to do. There was but one schooner anchored off the town laden with hardwood, so he kindly offered to accompany me and show me the best stores. We found Zarate to be a considerable place, neat, clean, and full of gringos. We found a French butcher and a French greengrocer, and sent Jim down to the beach tottering beneath a great load of delicacies, beef, potatoes, pumpkins, apples, and onions. The 19th was another day of sultry calm and bad temper. So was the 20th. But on the 21st, it blew a gale from the southwest, and we sailed at great speed till nightfall, when we made fast to a tree on the bank and caught some fine fish for supper. This day we passed several southward-bound goletas, chiefly laden with charcoal. These Italians sail up to the riachos of the Chaco and moor alongside the forest, while the crews are on shore cutting down wood and burning charcoal, until they have sufficient to load their vessels and return. Our pilot seemed to know and hailed all the skippers from the Boca as we passed each other. On May the 22nd, the wind was northerly, so, after sailing up one reach close-hauled, we had to come to an anchor again. The shore near us was low and swampy and overgrown with huge reeds. We saw a great many geese flying inland, so I went up the masthead to see what sort of a country lay beyond. Some two miles inland there was a cliff parallel to the river, and I saw at the foot of this there stretched an extensive laguna, upon which were feeding thousands of ducks, swans, and other birds. The morass extended from the river to the edge of the lake. Tempted by all this prospective sport, Arnaud and myself took our shotguns and proceeded to wade through the swamp towards the cliff, and a most distressing wade it was, too. We sunk up to our waists in the thick black mud, which sent up bubbles of foul-smelling gas as we stepped into it. The mud was quite cold, so protected was it from the sun's rays by the horrid tangle of aquatic growth that covered it. In places, there were two or three feet of water over the mud, and often we sank so deeply in the slime that we became alarmed and thought of turning back, for what danger can so terrify the imagination as that of being inextricably stuck in such a slough as this? The reeds and other plants grew far above our heads, so that we could not see where we were going, and had to judge our direction by the position of the sun and the heavens. 
The mosquitoes troubled us terribly, as did the camelotas that wound their stems around our legs and seemed to try to drag us down. After traveling in this exceedingly unpleasant manner for upwards of an hour, we suddenly came to the end of this obstructive vegetation and were in the open air once more, with nothing but a quarter of mile of bare festering mud between us and the laguna. And now came our reward. Geese, turkeys, golden plovers, black ibis, snipe, teal, and some other species of aquatic birds whose very names I do not know, were feeding here in incredible numbers. They were rather wild, but we managed to kill quite as much as we could manage to carry back through the swamp. We were now both very tired with our exertions, almost faint, but could not possibly sit down in the soft mud into which our bodies would have sunk never to rise, for to recover one's feet again would have been quite impossible. So we waded across the lake, which was shallow, and to our delight reached dry and solid earth again under the cliff on the other side. Here were some trees that swarmed with noisy and gaudy-plumaged parrots, of which I shot a few to skin as specimens. We were pretty well done up by the time we got on board, but a bumper of Carlin wine soon set us right again. While becalmed, or delayed by headwinds, as we often were in the course of this voyage, we generally found that sport of some kind for gun or rod was to be obtained in the virgin forests and savannas, and on the numerous riachos, so time rarely hung heavy on our hands. Even on this night, we had the excitement of some more and rather unusual sport. As we lay moored alongside the bank, we heard a sound as if some large animal breaking its way through the rank vegetation close to us. There was much noise of snorting and splashing and of breaking reeds. It was intensely dark, so we could not perceive what manner of beast this could be. Someone suggested that it was a tiger, but considering the marshy nature of the ground, we concluded that it was a carpincho. Of these animals, we had already seen several and knew them to abound hereabouts. The carpincho, I must explain for the benefit of most of my readers, is an amphibious animal that can best be described as a river pig. Its flesh is esteemed as a great delicacy by the riverside folk. When the unknown monster was, judging by the noise, just in front of us, we fired a volley at it, seemingly without effect. So we reloaded, and, standing in readiness, ordered Arthur to strike a blue light so as to illuminate the neighborhood. Then, by the unearthly glare, we were surprised to behold staring at us fearlessly with fiery eyes a huge being whose black head was topped by two great horns. It is the devil, whispered Jim in horror, and his fingers wandered nervously about his neck for the blessed relic that some padre at far Mauritius had given him ere he had started on his wanderings over the seas. It certainly looked uncommonly like the traditional devil, and we hesitated, bull buccaneers though we were, to fire again at his diabolical majesty. With a last spurt of haggard flame, our blue light died out, and we were left in darkness. Then was heard Jurdine's gruff voice, Jim, bring up the bull's eye. With shaking hand, Jim brought it, but absolutely refused to throw the light onto the shore and reveal once more the outlines of that dread form. So Jurdine, the undaunted one, snatched it from him 
and with as much sang-froid as if he had been a London policeman flashing his bull's-eye on some small street Arab sleeping on a doorstep, directed the bright disk of light full on to Satan's coal-black visage, and lo, it was a bull. How a bull had strayed across this league of treacherous morass I cannot say, but there he stood, blinking in the light and evidently puzzled at our strange conduct. Jardine now proposed to send a rifle bullet into him, cut him up, and salt him. We felt much tempted to accede to this proposal, stolen fruit is sweet, and sweeter still is stolen beef. But we hesitated, our insular prejudices, I suppose, making us rather shy of felony. So we sat down and argued the question out in our usual warm and elegant manner. On one side, it was argued that the owner of the bull was a wealthy man and could easily spare him. That cattle stealing was the custom of the country. The most respectable men in the republic, said Jardine, the generals, doctors, statesmen, and the presidents, without exception, have been cattle lifters in their day. So why not we, when a bull comes and puts himself right in our way? The bull was spared, however, and in despite of these unanswerable arguments but I am afraid the high tone of our morality had little to do with our abstention from felony. The fact was, the temptation was not a strong one. We had eaten well and were not hungry, and we had already more beef on board, as it was, than would keep fresh. Had we been hungry or short of meat, I fear that our bull would have replenished our larder. Thus it was that we were preserved from committing a great crime that would have hanged us, even in civilized England, not so many years back. I will not go into all the details of our most tedious voyage to Rosario. Sometimes vessels occupy several months between Buenos Aires and that port, one bark, a short time back, being as much as 120 days on the way. But that is, I believe, the longest time on record. The reason is that vessels are delayed by the constant windings of the river, so that the wind that is favorable for one reach is a headwind in the next, and, as I have before explained, to beat up the river against the wind is impossible, even for a smart fore-and-after like the falcon, save in one or two places where the current is feeble. Nowhere does the river wind anything like so much as between the sea and Rosario. There is one most tantalizing series of bends about halfway, known as the Nuevas Vueltas, or Nine Turns. To pass these, unless you pole or warp, you may have to wait for six or seven successive changes of the wind. You run up one reach beneath a slashing pampero. In the next reach, this is in your teeth, and there you have to wait at anchor for days, perhaps weeks, until the wind shifts, though you know all the time that, once you were beyond that reach, the pampero would be a fair wind again for a long distance. Between calms and flaws of the wind, it is always down anchor or up anchor in this river, entailing no small amount of labor to the mariner. And so it was with us till the last day of May, when, having been twenty days out, we had not accomplished more than two-thirds of the distance to Rosario, and began at this rate to despair of ever reaching Paraguay. Since Zorate, we had passed no town or village, uninhabited swamps and jungles everywhere lining the banks. Thus, we had run short for the last three days of sugar, rum, and biscuit, and were anxious to reach some settlement. 
On the twentieth day out, we did see a town, but only saw it, alas, for we were not to approach it as it was on another arm of the river. This was San Pedro, built on an eminence with a lofty church tower that is visible for many leagues around. This town stuck to us all day, though we were sailing at a good rate. It seemed as if we should never pass it. It was worse than Netley Hospital is to a yacht going up Southampton water. The piranha here wound about so much that it really appeared as if we were going round and round San Pedro. Sometimes it was in front of us, sometimes behind. Now on the port end, now on the starboard. And to think, as Arnaud dreamily remarked, that up there there is plenty of rum and sugar and biscuit. And he sighed deeply. A large Italian river bark passed us this day. She was fifteen days out from Buenos Aires and had been warping through all the calm weather. Later on in the day we overtook her again, for we were then in a bend of the river up which we could only just lay close-hauled with our sheets flattened right in. She, of course, could not manage this, sagging to leeward as she did with her shallow drop, but was obliged to take to warping once more. This part of the channel was nearly two miles wide, flowing between plains of lofty pampa grass. We took the ground in the afternoon, running on to it with a violent shock, for we were under all canvas at the time, and the wind was blowing fresh. We managed to haul the vessel off again, easily enough, by taking out an anchor astern. On the 1st of June, it blew a strong gale from the south-southwest, a pampero. Now this was a fair wind for us all the way to Rosario, so we made up for lost time and after sailing for fifteen hours came to an anchor not more than twelve miles below that port. It was not by any means a pleasant day. The rain fell in blinding torrents, and the lightning and thunder were more terrible than I think I have ever experienced. Occasionally squalls of extreme violence struck us, in some of which we were obliged to lower all our sails on deck. Throughout the day we had three reefs in our mainsail, and that was quite as much as we wanted, though the wind was nearly right aft. We flew by Obligado, a little port, and St. Nicholas, a considerable place, but did not stop to procure provisions. We could not waste so glorious a wind as this. In the afternoon we came to a point where there was a rapid bend, which we just lay through close-hauled. But at the commencement of it, rode at anchor no less than fifteen schooners, some of which we recognized as having passed by us on the way, for none of the river craft could hope to weather that point with this wind blowing. This day our pilot walked the deck with a prouder gait than usual, for he had now outstripped all the other craft. It was with a voice of importance, too, that he shouted his orders to Tropical Jim, shivering with cold at the tiller, green of complexion and miserable, the very babel of tongues in use on board the Falcon during this voyage was curious enough. Spanish, Italian, Genoese, English, and Creole French were combined into one common language. Jim would occasionally swear in Malay and Hindustani for variety, and a good many Guarani words crept into our vocabulary later on in Paraguay. This is a specimen of the manner of giving and replying to orders on board. Jim is at the tiller, Pilot looking out. Pilot, arriba, bear away. Jim, arriba it is, sir. Pilot, horse un poco, bueno, luff a little, steady. Jim, 
Orson poco, monsieur. Bueno it is. We passed the bark this afternoon, laden with marble. She was thirty-eight days from Buenos Aires, so had more cause to grumble than we had. We could not afford to waste this glorious breeze, so broke through our rule and sailed on till midnight, by which time Don Juan computed that we had made nearly forty leagues, an excellent day's work. We should have reached Rosario before morning had we not, just as eight bells sounded, run hard up on a sandbank. We had to work diligently throughout the night before we could haul the vessel off again. We lay out our big anchor, but dragged it home twice, and not till we had got two anchors down did we succeed in hauling her off into deep water. By this time the pampero had blown itself out, and a dead calm followed for twenty-four hours. On June the 3rd, there came light cat spas of wind from the south. We got up anchor and sailed slowly before them against the here strong current. Between the puffs, we went astern again and had to drop our kedge. At last, by watching our opportunities as closely as if we had been sailing a race, we reached Rosario and came to an anchor among the shipping exactly opposite to the custom house, being twenty-three days out from the Rio Tigre, not an over-smart passage, it must be confessed. End of chapter 19